Today, by the way, I am breaking format. Hi and hello. You found the podcast for moms who don't have time for podcasts. I'm Indiana Adams, and today, by the way, is the short and sweet podcast that hopefully brightens your day. I am so glad you're here. This is a longer episode about the concept of race and my experience as an Asian and Native American woman who has very little ties to her cultural heritage. This is simply my lived-in story about how I experienced the concept of race, my internalized racism, and my family legacy of racism. On July 6th, Sinead Bovell wrote on Instagram that, quote, It's been 43 days since the death of George Floyd. Here are some ways your life should have changed. You've had uncomfortable conversations with family members. You've had uncomfortable conversations at work. You've had uncomfortable conversations with friends. You follow new accounts, authors, and news sources that have changed your perspective on race, privilege, and justice. You've recognized some of the times that you explicitly or implicitly contributed to the problem. Diversity and inclusivity at work have taken on a whole new meaning. You've reflected on situations you wish you had handled differently. You've realized that there is a difference between not being racist and being anti-racist. You've recognized how apparent racism may have been throughout your life. It may have been packaged in the form of jokes, just a part of high school, or just the way a certain family member was. You feel more informed, but also feel like you have so much more to learn. Certain people have disappointed you, but so many others have inspired you. Ever since the Ahmad Aubrey case gained national attention, I've become the somewhat safe minority person that my white friends are coming to with questions about racial reconciliation. I care very much about this issue and usually point people to resources like Be the Bridge or Black Thought Leaders, but over these last couple of months, I've just become more aware of my otherness. It's odd because I didn't think much about my race growing up, and that was by design. I grew up in a blue-collar town in southern Indiana called Seymour. The town is literally the inspiration behind the song Small Town by John Mellencamp. The town is mostly white, mostly conservative, and mostly close-knit, even if some of us have moved away. Nearly all of my close friends were white. I remember going to summer camp in elementary school, filling out our intake form, and I got to the race question. I was supposed to check a box, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, or other. I had to have been around Jude's age, third grade or so, and I looked at my best friend Amanda's paper and asked, what box did you check? She laughed uproariously and said, white, silly. And I shrugged and I checked the white box too. You see, Amanda and I were pretty similar. We both lived with our grandmas. Our grandmas were friends with curly old lady hair and a love of bingo. We went to the same elementary school. We shared clothes and we had crushes on the same boys. Amanda was blonde with fair skin that got freckly in the summer, and I was dark year-round with black hair that took a red tint in the sun. I knew we didn't look alike, but in every other regard, we were similar. So I checked the same box that she did. I can only remember crying in elementary school three times. Once when Robbie Rogers picked me up and body slammed me to demonstrate his strength to the rest of the third grade. Once when a bee stung me after I picked it up by its wing to impress my new friend Meredith. And once when Floyd Sanders made slanty eyes at me and called me a chink. I didn't cry because it didn't hurt my feelings. I cried because I thought it was untrue. My eyes are giant and round, not at all slanted. 
I didn't know what a chink was, but I knew he meant it to hurt me, and that made me angry and, and embarrassed. And that's why I cried. In college, Brenda Salter McNeil was one of our chapel speakers, and she addressed race and racism in the Christian context head on. In the aftermath, so many of my friends called me to apologize for not recognizing the fact that I'm a minority, and they asked for my forgiveness. It was awkward for all of us. I know they meant well, and that guilt was a huge motivator, but the truth was, sometimes I forgot that I was a minority. I'd handle these clumsy apologies with confusion. Do I say the words, I forgive you? Was there an offense that I needed to forgive? All I know is that I felt fine before that chapel series, but then after it, I was uncomfortable when friends started treating me differently. I did an Instagram live a few months ago and dared to answer any question that was asked on the spot. Someone asked how I had experienced racism growing up. And I wasn't able to answer this on the spot because all I could think about was my black friends. Black women who are largely discredited and ignored. Black men who are feared and hated without cause. What I experienced growing up was nothing like what what Craig Stevens, the only black kid in my grade, experienced growing up. I stammered through my answer. The singular elementary experience of Floyd Sanders' rude remark aside, the only examples of how I experienced racism was whenever there would be Asian symbols or writing on something, someone would ask me, what does this say? And I'd be like, I don't know, come on. (laughs) And once in college, a guy liked me only because he had an Asian fetish, and that didn't feel great. But mostly... People forgot that I was a different race, and they would do things like a terrible impersonation of the Asian women who work at the nail salon. This specific example happened recently, and was actually one of my children's teachers at a class dinner we had. She meant it to be funny, but I just, I was just horrified. No one laughed, thankfully, and someone quickly changed the subject. I still struggle with speaking up when stuff like this happens, because it so rarely happens. Mostly... Being ambiguously ethnic has allowed me to walk in spaces and overhear conversations that my Black and Hispanic friends don't. I am quick to stand up for others, but I'm very slow to stand up for myself. Dismantling internalized racism is hard work. My upbringing caused me to deny my heritage and ignore any otherness that I have as a minority. I've been meaning to tell my grandmother's story for a while. I've been working on this episode off and on for about a month, and... One of these days, I'm going to write a screenplay about her because I think it's a story that needs to be told. When I was three years old, my father died in a helicopter crash while serving active duty in the United States Army. He must have known that he had a dangerous job because a year prior, he made sure to leave instructions as to what should happen to me in the event of his death. He and my mom were divorced, and he had primary custody, and he stated in his will that if he were to die, that he would prefer that I live with his parents. So after he died, I was raised by my dad's parents in Seymour, Indiana. My grandma's name was Amelia. She was short, and she seemed to me only to get shorter over time, but but that's because I just kept getting taller. She was a lover of McDonald's, which she ate daily, and she loved bingo, which she played several times a week, even after her hearing had started to go, and she couldn't really hear the caller or keep up with the dobbing. She could be spotted in any crowd due to a full head of loose white curls, a summer cloud always over her head. I wouldn't describe her as warm or particularly outgoing or friendly. She was really complex. 
She was moody, but funny, secretive, but brutally honest, prideful, but somehow always seemed like she had a chip on her shoulder. She fretted about what people thought of us and spent more money than she had. She was embarrassed by things like our modest and messy house and how dark my skin would get in the summer. She worked on the maintenance staff of an apartment complex when I was a child. She mainly helped in the senior living complexes doing simple things like changing light bulbs or refreshing up the apartments after someone had moved or passed away just to get them ready for the next person. She was always bringing little things home that people would buy her and she was always buying cheap knickknacks for a house that we didn't need. She couldn't resist a yard sale, and she owned a thrift store for a short time. She always had spearmint gum in her purse, wadded up tissues in her pockets, and she wore her house key around her neck to keep track of it. When she died, her apartment hid numerous word search books, pocket notebooks full of her pretty loopy cursive, and photo books full of every school picture or 35mm print that anyone had ever given her. My grandmother was full-blooded Sioux Indian. And this, until her 60s, this seemed to be the source of her shame, the chip on her shoulder. According to Amelia herself, she was born in 1928, the daughter of John Genoux, a man from France, and Mabel Sazu, a full-blooded Sioux Indian woman on the Crow Creek Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. But according to the census data and reservation records, that wasn't the full truth. After the jump, I'll explain what was most likely the truth, but I do have to take a quick break to honor this episode's sponsor. One thing that I'm thankful for is the fact that BetterHelp was set up for online counseling before the whole world had to pivot to try to figure out how to do everything online. BetterHelp is the largest online counseling platform worldwide. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I started counseling to help me learn how to process some of my health concerns, and my counselor is also helping me work through my issues with sleeplessness. BetterHelp has made it possible for anyone to get help on their own time and at their own pace and on the platform that works best for them. If you live in an area where it may be difficult to get access to counselors with the expertise you need, BetterHelp is there for you. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist, and it's completely confidential. No awkward waiting rooms. It was easy to start. After filling out a questionnaire to help match you with the kind of counselor you want, communication starts within 24 hours. And if you aren't happy with your counselor, know that BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free for you to change counselors if needed. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a Today By The Way friend, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com indiana, and financial aid may be available to those who qualify. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Indiana. And now, back to the show. According to Amelia, she was born in 1928 and was half French and half Native American. But according to the census data and reservation records, Amelia was born a year earlier in 1927, and her father John was 100% Native American. My DNA 23andMe test basically confirms this. If you'd ever met my grandmother or seen photos of her as a young woman, you would know instantly that she was Native American. And it's still evident in my aunts and uncles with their black hair and their high cheekbones, despite having white fathers. For most of my childhood, my grandmother insisted that she was French. My grandparents... My grandparents had a complicated marriage. 
I'd later find out that this is my grandmother's third marriage. And we'd also wonder after her death if it was her fourth marriage because she had a different last name on her marriage certificate. Married four times is a lot now, but in the 1930s, for someone who is not Elizabeth Taylor, it was highly unusual. My grandpa was a gruff, retired Air Force veteran who drank a lot of Budweiser and smoked Winston cigarettes that he'd buy in bulk at the commissary. He was a caretaker and funny, and I loved him fiercely. They fought a lot, and one of the biggest verbal jabs that he'd throw at her in the heat of the moment was that she was a fat squaw. Sometimes he'd refer to her as that Indian woman when he was complaining about her. When I was 10, my grandmother was 60. I went away for summer camp, and she took a trip back to the reservation. I think that was her first time back in over 40 years. I know this because after she died, there was a newspaper article about her being reunited with her younger sister, who she hadn't seen since she was a child. I remember when she came back, she began talking a little about her childhood in South Dakota, sometimes saying she wanted to move back there or to be buried there one day. It seemed that she had begun to dismantle some of the lies that she was taught to believe about being Indian. When Amelia reached school age, she and her older sister, like most children who lived on the reservation, were sent to a government and church-run boarding school. These schools were founded with the purpose to civilize American Indians. Their goal was to westernize and Christianize Native American children, something that was a direct continuation of the logic brought by the incredibly immoral doctrine of discovery, which is a concept of public international law that says a land, though occupied by Native people, may be claimed by a foreign sovereign nation. The doctrine of discovery was the inspiration in the 1800s for the Monroe Doctrine, which declared U.S. hegemony over the Western Hemisphere, and and later Manifest Destiny, which justified American expansion westward by propagating the belief that the U.S. was destined to control all land from the Atlantic to the Pacific and beyond. It was how my grandmother came to live on a reservation in the first place. This is the place in the story where I caution that not every American Indian story is that of my grandmother's. Most American Indian children were sent away to these boarding schools. Some children were removed forcibly from their homes. Some were reluctantly given because the family saw it as the only option for education for their children. And some sent their children away in desperation. During my grandmother's childhood, it was the Great Depression. Jobs and food were scarce for everyone, but it was especially scarce on the reservation. My grandmother, however, came from a family where the children were sent to these boarding schools eagerly. My grandmother's family believed that in order to survive, they had to assimilate into white majority culture. This is the very definition of internalized racism, which is the conscious and unconscious acceptance of racial hierarchy in which whites are consistently ranked above people of color. It gets a little hairy, but see if you can follow along here. My grandmother's great-grandfather was Chief Wizzy Smoking Lodge. In Mary Frances' book, Hampton Institute, which is a book about this famous boarding school for African-American and Native American students, she writes specifically about Chief Wizzy. She writes, Chief Wizzy is what we should expect of this Christian chief who, when his grandson died at Hampton years ago, called his people together and told them, if only one of our children returns to teach us the white man's road, it would be worth the loss of all the rest. It is Chief Wizzy who is said to have given the land for the town Fort Thompson, and in 1889, it was he who reduced the Great Sioux Reservation by 9.2 million acres by giving it to the white-run government. An Episcopalian deacon at the time considered Chief Wizzy to be the best chief there as regards to their mission work, 
And Chief Wizzy sent all of his children to boarding school and gave them the very un-Indian names of Lucy, Amy, John, Robert, Guy, Joseph, and Mary. Quite a change from our ancestral names. Chief Wizzy's wife was Waxen Pine. His brother was White Ghost. His father was Buck. And his mother was Blue Butterfly. Wizzy is the Sioux word for the color yellow that a deer hide turns after it's tanned. And when the time comes for me to add my children to the reservation mineral rights records, Jude will probably be registered as Jude Wizzy Smoking Lodge Adams. It's worth noting here that Chief Wizzy's son, John, who is my great-great-grandfather, is part of a photography exhibit at MoMA, showing him at boarding school, shorn of his long hair, dressed in a suit. All that to say is that my grandmother came from a family who believed in Hampton Institute's goal of assimilating its students into Anglo-American mainstream society and put aside their own tribe and nation. She was a dutiful graduate and never spoke of her heritage, and her one goal was to pass as white and to marry a white man. I don't know much about her previous husbands, but I do know she met my grandfather in Rapid City, South Dakota, when she was 25, or 26, and she was a divorcee with a little girl named Janine. For all of her life, for all of her father's life, and for all of her grandfather's life, that branch in my family tree believed that Indian was bad and white was better. She never even admitted that she was Sue until the twilight of her life. And this was the woman who raised me. Is it any wonder that I had no idea which box to check? Perplexingly, my grandmother was also one of the most racist people I have ever known. The reason why I was subjected to SPF 75 as a child was not because they were concerned about my skin's health, although they probably should have been. It was because once, when we were at a public school... Someone said to my grandmother about me, she's beautiful. Is she half black? My grandmother was mortified and she procured a special sunblock from the dermatologist that would keep me as light as could be. On the proverbial totem pole of racial hierarchy in internalized racism, my grandmother saw white on the top, Asian and Indian somewhere near the bottom, but black at the very bottom. My friend Amanda, the one I went to camp with, developed a crush on a boy named Hardy. Hardy was black. And when I came home from camp, I was point blank told that if I ever had a black boyfriend, that I may as well pack my bags, that that was unacceptable. That year, I was in the fifth grade. The N-word was used in my house, and I wasn't allowed to watch the Cosby show. My friend Domini had dark skin like me because her mom was from Nepal, but because of her naturally curly hair, she could have passed for a light-skinned black girl. My grandparents never let her spend the night because she looked black, even though she wasn't black. They just didn't want me being friends with someone who looked like she could be. How messed up is that? I have a really hard time reconciling the fact that these people that I loved and who were so great in so many other ways were straight up racist. That my grandmother, who was an oppressed minority herself, could be so hateful regarding other minorities. My specific heritage of being Thai and Sioux is unusual, but more so, my upbringing is unusual. I didn't grow up with my mother, who is from Thailand, and I always feel a little bit of shame when I meet my mom's friends and they ask me why I don't speak Thai. I don't blush very easily, but I turned a deep scarlet when I was on a date with Chris once, and the server at the Japanese restaurant that we were at came to correct me on my chopstick usage. I felt like a failure of an Asian. And I know nothing of being Sue. I knew nothing of being Thai, but clearly, I'm not white. 
Strangers mean well when they stare into my face and say, you are so exotic looking. What are you? And I know that my friends mean well when they say, I don't think about you as another race. You're just you. I'm always aware of my otherness in new situations. When I'm at a conference or a church event or a neighborhood thing, if I'm the only minority there, I notice right away. But in my day-to-day, the truth is, because my race isn't threatening to anyone, I've been given a privilege of not really having to think about it. That's not a privilege that my Black neighbor Tiffany has. She's never not aware. Before we go, one thing that I want to point out that I am aware of is that my white friends and my predominantly white church, they are trying. They listened, and they're still listening. They learned, and they're still learning. They're having messy discussions, and they're getting some things wrong as they listen and learn, but they've chosen to keep moving forward instead of being silent. For every hard conversation we have, that's a brick being removed from the wall between us. That's a brick being used to build a road to reconciliation, and I think that's really great. I think my point of this story is that we're 47 days post-George Floyd's death. The world should look a little different now. We should be looking under the rug for things that we swept under it long ago. For me, that's internalized racism sustained for five generations in my family legacy of bigotry. It's been said that every generation's duty is to make the next generation better than our own. And I hope to do that for my family by proudly proclaiming our Thai and Sioux heritage and by reclaiming Lakota names for my children. I hope you don't say to your minority friends that you don't see race or apologize for not seeing race. Instead, I invite you to ask questions and to open up conversation. Ask them, what have you been mulling over these last couple of months? And after they've told you, you could offer to pray with them or, or to join them in whatever they're reading so that you can be a soft place for them to land in these conversations. In fact, this question is good for any of your friends. Not all of them have a podcast and will lay out their life story for you. Most of the time, you have to ask. And you know what? I'd love to know that about you. We have a private Facebook group called My Internet Besties that one day will be its own standalone website. Right now, the Facebook group is active and lively. And you know what? I no longer look at my Facebook feed. I really only use Facebook to participate in groups that I'm a part of and enjoy being in, like My Internet Besties. I want to know there, what have you been mulling over these last couple of months? Are you worried about the kids returning to school, work, finances, the upcoming election, the health of your family members, race relations, being pregnant. Really, how's your heart? No matter what, I hope you know that we can always choose to move forward. Today is a new day, and friend, I am cheering you on.